Good morning. Good morning. And happy Father's Day to all the fathers in the room. <coughs> Typically, I very rarely diverse and digress to something outside of what I'm preaching through. But this morning, in through prayer and, and, and a lot of reading through God's Word, I just felt led to preach to men today, and mostly to myself. Today is Father's Day, and we celebrate that, and we have the greatest Father any of us could ask for in our Heavenly Father. And it is Him that we ought to imitate. So this morning I want to look at defining a godly man. And it's looking at the aspects of men in Scripture that God has defined as godly and good men. Not necessarily because we have their family history here and we understand how they parented their children and how they loved their spouses. But in the fact of when God calls people blameless or pure or godly or righteous, we ought to take notice and we ought to imitate those qualities. God is not silent on how we ought to live our daily lives. He is not silent on how we ought to love our wives or our children or each other. How we ought to conduct our services. Todd, you read through. I enjoy listening to you read, by the way. Love the tone of your voice. It's great. It reminds me of a voice I would think Moses would have. But Anyway, as we were reading through, as, as you guys continue to read and listen... You hear over and over that God is saying, these things I set aside as holy, and you are not to imitate these things, because these are mine. But there are qualities of a godly man that God tells us to imitate. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Today's man is very different than what God defines it as in our culture. Today's man is not defined as a biblical man, as a man who is strong in character and integrity and ethics as a man who is strong in love and leadership. But it is skewed. It is a soft, a weak-minded person. It is a follower of the world, an immoral man, often portrayed as a stupid man, often portrayed as a man who is absent from his family, not engaged in family life, and family life not engaged in his marriage, not engaged with what their children are doing self-absorbed, a lover of technology in the virtual world where they can escape. A man who is looked down upon is a biblical man. A man who stands firm on the truths of God's word. A man who loves and leads his wife and his family as God has ordained him to do. He is looked down upon. He is hostile. The world is hostile towards a godly man. A biblical man, the family unit is being attacked and has been attacked for many years. But now, today, there is a war over our children. If you don't believe me, look around. And the war over children starts with destroying the man of the home. Yes. The watchman of the family, the priest of the family, the leader of the family. As the man of the home goes, so goes the family. And as the man in the home goes, so goes the church, because the church is made up of men and families. It is not that women are inferior. God has made us each in our roles, and they are both beautiful and blessed, and they are both equally needed, and they are both equally blessed under the Lord, but we fit different roles. And that is how God has made it to be, and it's beautiful. 
And it's exactly what God intended. And when we buck against that, we kick against the goads against the Lord and we wonder why we are in disarray and chaos. We wonder why our families struggle. We wonder why our churches struggle. When we neglect and detract from the word of God, we become at war with God. The scriptures are very clear with that. When we go against God's way, we are at war with God. And it's our jobs to humbly yield before the Lord every day and every moment of every day to fulfill the role that God has called each of us to. We don't need to look to the world to find out what they think a man ought to be because God is not silent on the matter. This morning I've got five, well, four main places that we're going to go to this morning to start defining the character of a godly man. Remember, this, def- this applies to everybody in some way. But again, we're speaking to men specifically this morning. But as a godly man, first and foremost, we must be godly. Can't have a godliness without being godly. And in that, we as men need to humble ourselves before the Lord. And that's not a one-time thing. That is a daily burden and cross that we are to bear. Because if our relationship with the Lord is not right, don't expect the rest of the family to continue healthy and growing and being nurtured. God has placed us as heads in our home. Not as dictators, but as men who lead with humility and meekness and kindness and gentleness and love, but with a firm conviction of the truth, unbending and unyielding to that truth. We stay straight upon the road that God has marked out, and we do not deviate, and we do not tolerate sin in our own lives or in the lives of our family. That is an absolute must. Without that, we're already off to the wrong path. We're already headed down the wrong road. Unfortunately, sin is not looked upon as sin anymore in our culture. It's normal. It's okay. It doesn't matter as long as it suits you and what you feel. I'm here to tell you God's not concerned about our feelings as much as he is about our holiness. But let's pray this morning and then we're going to dive into some portions of scripture and look at characteristics of a godly man that we ought to imitate that we ought to cling to that we can love god with all our heart mind soul and strength and that we teach our wives and our children to do the same and we uplift and uphold our families and protect them through our obedience to god has to be there but let's pray heavenly father we thank you lord that we have the privilege of gathering together as the church Lord, we we are blessed to be able to worship you at all times and in all seasons. We are able to worship you as we walk by the way, as we sit down at our tables, as we walk in the woods, as we do our work on a daily basis. In all things, we can worship you. But Lord, there is such a special sweetness to worshiping as the church, that bond of unity in Christ that we share and we can sing out And we can worship through the reading of the word and through the songs and through prayer. Father, we thank you for that. And we pray that you are exalted in your church. We pray that your church does not gather in vain, but that we continue to gather to honor and glorify you. That we continue to gather to be humbled in your presence. Because we cannot come in your presence and not find humility because you are great 
and you are holy, and we are not. Father, we just pray that you will lead us through your word this morning, that each of us can continue to glean from your word and grow in sanctification and in holiness. Father, that we would be useful to you, that we would be useful to our wives and to our children. And Father, that we would stand firm in the face of the hostility of the world. And we give you the glory and the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all probably I can guess where I'm going to start. The book of Job chapter 1. That's where we're going to start this morning. So if you're not there, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 1. There's five verses I want to read in chapter 1. There's five verses in chapter 40 and nine verses in chapter 42. And we're going to read those this morning. Again, the book of Job is my absolute favorite book of the Bible. I'm a little bit of a strange duck that way, but that's okay. I have loved the book of Job for many years. But there's a couple things that God mentions in the book of Job that makes my ears prick. And one of them is found in verse 1. And it says this, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And here it is. And that man was blameless, upright. I'm going to stop right there. When God calls somebody blameless and upright, we need to understand the why behind it. Because God doesn't give those titles willy-nilly. He doesn't just pass them out. Oh, you're blameless and upright. Oh, so are you. Oh, you are good. When God says that, there's a reason. And he gives that reason, if you continue reading through verse 1, fearing God and hating evil. What defined Job as blameless and upright was a man who feared the Lord. And that fear wasn't just, I'm terrified of God. Now, there is an aspect of fear because God is holy and we are not that we ought to fear. That is what drives us to the cross. That's what drives us to grace and mercy is the holiness of God. Because God is holy, he will punish sin. Because God is holy, we are reckoned to him for every account where we are not. And in that, that drives us to a fear of the wrath and retribution of God. But in that, we find grace and mercy because of the work and person of Jesus Christ, because of the cross and his shed blood that covers and atones for our sin. We are saved from the wrath of God. That is the work of the cross. But in being a man who fears God, it is keeping God in that high esteem and in a correct view that we always fear him as he ought to be. That when God said, as Todd read this morning, these things are holy to me and you're not going to mess with them, we don't mess with them. We reverence God. That word fear can be interchangeable with reverence. To think about reverencing somebody who is greater than anything we can come up with. Who is greater by far than any God of this world. Of any person of this world. We offer reverence to people in high esteem and high positions. But God is above all of that. Therefore our fear and our reverence of him ought to be the highest. Job understood that. Job had a fear of God that drove the way that he lived. And because he feared God rightly, God called him blameless and upright. But he also had another key term there. And it's that he turned away or he hated evil. Godly men hate evil and sin. If you don't, you are not being a godly man. If you're okay with sin, you are not a godly man. If you tolerate sin in your life, you are not being a godly man. Sin is serious. 
It's serious enough that it sent Christ to the cross. It's serious enough that the Lamb of God, who was without sin, bled and was brutalized because of our sin. When we sin, we ought to see another reason that Christ was on the cross and be broken. We ought to take sin seriously, that we don't tolerate even the smallest piece of it in our hearts, but that we deal uprightly with the Lord in reverence and fear, and that we lay it before him, seek his forgiveness, and turn and hate that which brought Christ to the cross. That's what it means to hate sin, to hate evil. It's not to hate people, because people are made in the image of God, and that is a beautiful thing. But it's to hate sin. It's to weed it out. It's to get it out of our hearts. It's to get it out of our lives that we can love God and love people. Jesus said the two greatest commandments, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because if you're doing those two things, there's no room for sin. If you're doing those two things, you are walking upright and blameless before the Lord. That is what it means to hate sin. And if you hate sin in your life, you're going to hate the sin in your family's life. And Job understood that. Jump down to verse 5. One of the characteristics of daily life that Job exuded blamelessness and uprightness was here in his family. Verse 5, when the days of feasting had completed their cycle. So Job's sons and daughters got together and feasted often. And they enjoyed that. Job was wealthy. They had an opportunity to enjoy times of feasting together. But when the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate his children, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. Job would get up early and set his day right and seek to set the days of his children right from the beginning. Why? Here's the why. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did continually. Job was constantly seeking to spiritually guide and bless his family daily. When he got up in the morning, the Lord and holiness and his family was on his heart. Job dealt with the spiritual aspect of his children's hearts on a daily basis. It says here, continually. The heart of a father, the heart of a godly man is towards the spiritual well-being of his children. Because the apostle John in his epistle said it best. It, there is no greater joy than to know that my children are walking with the Lord. If your heart as a father is not towards the spiritual health and vitality of your children, check your heart. God has given them to us to raise for his glory. Are we doing that? That is a mark of a godly man, to love his family well, that every day he invests spiritually in his family. There's no room for laziness, because when we get lazy, the world gets in. And when the world gets in, sin creeps in. And when sin creeps in, we start to tolerate things, or we kill it. Those are the two choices. Deal with it, or tolerate it. Because there's no middle ground. God has not defined a middle ground that we can walk on and that we're okay on both. We either love God and hate sin, or we tolerate sin and hate God. Those are the two sides of the coin that we have to choose from. Where are we going to be? 
Job's heart was continually towards seeking the blessing of his children by seeing them walk with the Lord and by living a daily example. Fathers, that is a tall order. And it's one I personally struggle with every day to live a godly life and example before my wife and my children and before others. It is a hard road because it's a denial of self. Because when you have a wife and you have children, you are no longer worried about just yourself. Your wife and your children come first. Our needs come last, and they must. If they don't, you're not investing. You're still worried about yourself. A selfless life. Because Jesus equated marriage with his relationship with him in the church. And Christ gave everything. We as husbands and fathers are to give everything in like manner. Job understood this and God called him blameless and upright. It is a high mark to continually seek the spiritual well-being of our children. Then in verse 20 and 22, when the rubber hits the road, when life happens, right? Like Anybody here think life is easy? No. Good. I'm glad because now I don't have to divert where I'm going. Life is not easy. It's full of heartache. But it's full of joy as well. Because God is our joy. Even in the midst of our suffering, God is our joy. Have you ever looked around at those who do not know Christ and wonder how do they make it through every day? I do often. Especially when hard times come. How do people make it through those? Without Christ, I don't know how they do. But when the hard times come, because they're guaranteed to come, because God guaranteed in his word that hard times are going to come. Those who are upright and blameless, there's a response that we ought to have. Verse 20. After everything that happened to Job, he does this. Then Job arose and tore his robe. He shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. I don't know about you, but God, that's a tall order. To lose your children, your wealth, to lose everything, and to still fall down and worship as your first response. That's huge. That's big. But that's what we're called to if we want to be upright and blameless before the Lord. Job's response, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do you want to be a godly man? Let that be your first response. When the hard times come, and you know what? God is guaranteed we're not always going to understand the why behind those. Because as he said through the prophet Isaiah, my ways are greater than your ways. They're higher, right? And my thoughts are above your thoughts. We don't know the ultimate outcome of our lives and the scope of what God is doing. But as we step back and we look at our past, we can kind of see God weaving a tapestry together, right? We've heard that analogy before. Do we take time to step back and look at it? Because what you'll do is you'll find encouragement. Do you set up Ebenezer's in your life? Anybody not know what an Ebenezer is when I say that? No? Okay, good. If you set up Ebenezer's in your life, you're able to look back upon those and take encouragement and to take heart, and to find strength, and to be encouraged, and to encourage others. But if we just walk with our heads down, and we never look up, 
and see what God is doing, it's hard to find encouragement. And as godly men, we are to encourage our wives and our children as well. Because it's not easy. Because life is difficult. Turn to chapter 40, please, in the book of Job. Chapter 40. God is dealing with Job's heart, dealing with Job's self-righteousness here, and his view of why things are happening to him. And Job has a response to when God says, what are you going to do? Verse 1. Then the Lord said to Job, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Here's Job's response. And then Job answered and, and answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? For I have laid my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer. Even twice and I will add nothing more. We are to never to add to God's word. But we are to be humble before the Lord. Because in the Lord's presence we are insignificant. And the only reason we have significance is because God made us significant in Christ. When he adopted us as sons and daughters, he made us significant. He made us in his image. We have value. Human life, all human life has value because we are made in the image of God. Plain and simple. Then turn to verse uh, chapter 42. When the Lord got done revealing his glory and his might and his wisdom to Job, Job had a chance to respond. And he had a chance to respond in many ways, just as all of us do, to our circumstances, to when God reproves us or disciplines us as children, right? Hebrews chapter 12. Those whom God loves, he disciplines, just as a father disciplines his children. This is Job's response to the discipline of the Lord. Verse 1. Then Job answered and the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. Job's statement I will speak. Do you hear what it was? I will ask you, and you instruct me. It's the humility to ask the Lord to teach us as men to be men. To have those right responses. To have the understanding of his word. This book is foolishness without the spirit of God to guide us in wisdom. That's what the word says. It is foolishness to the unregenerate. But to those who are saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. We need God to give us wisdom. If we come at the Bible with our own wisdom, we will be wrong. A godly man seeks the wisdom of God, not just from the Lord and through his word, but through also accountability through other godly men who have been there and done that. I love old people. I'll be the first to admit it. When I was young... I would actually go to the old people's classes because I liked old people. They have a lot of wisdom. They have a lot of guidance they can offer. They have so much if you take time to just sit and listen. That's why God told us to do life together. 
because the older can teach the younger. But you know what? There are many times the younger say something that is like, wow, that was profound. To have a blameless and upright life is to fear God and to hate evil. That's what Job teaches us. Secondly, let's turn to the book of Proverbs this morning. Book of Proverbs, turn to chapter 31. And you all are going to be like, wait a minute, why are we going to 31? That's about women. Well, it is, but there's also stuff about men in there. <coughs> Things we need to understand. <coughs> Proverbs chapter 31. King Lemuel, his mother taught him many sayings and understandings and instructions. And one of the key things that she wrote to him is as a godly man, these are the things you ought to understand. Verse 8 and 9. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth and judge righteously and defend the rights of the afflicted and the needy. Godly men use their strength to protect, never to hurt. Godly men use their strength to defend those who need defending. Godly men use their position and their strength to seek after that which God values. God values the unfortunate, the needy, the poor, the orphans, the widows. Do we? Do we show that to our children and how we care for the poor, the needy, the widows, and the orphans? A godly man is to use his strength and his resources to bless those who are around us to uplift those who need uplifting, to help those who need help, those who can't do it for themselves. We are to use our strength always to bind up and to help, never to break or to mar or to give pain to. Strong men know how to restrain. It's those who are weak that, are, that lack discipline and self-control. But then in verse 23, when he's describing the godly woman, he describes an aspect of her husband. In verse 23, her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. What's important about sitting at the gates and being known there? Well, in Zechariah chapter 8 and verse 16, God defines it. That's where the elders of the city met to do judgment, to meet, to do counsel, to decide matters of the city, to decide matters of righteousness. And God says in chapter 8, verse 16 there in Zechariah, that you are to do this faithfully with truth and righteousness. So if a godly man has a godly wife, and the godly wife, her husband, is known in the gates of the city, he is an upright and righteous man who is in leadership, guiding those around him. Now, it doesn't mean all of us are meant to be the mayor or the governor or anything like that. But you are to lead well where God gives you opportunity. And a godly man is known as one who sits among the elders of the land, seeking counsel and wisdom, offering help and judgment where needed. That is what the church is, right? This is our community here. Men are to be active in their communities. Godly men are to come together for the best of their community. That's what the church is. We're a big community here, a big family. And it goes out from here to everybody around us. But if the church is weak, the community will be weak. 
Verse 28 and 29, a couple more aspects. Her children rise up and bless her, her husband also, and he praises her, saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. A godly man uplifts his wife. He loves his wife well. He blesses his wife. He makes sure she understands that she's not just the lady behind the scenes. That she's valued. That she is loved well. And she's appreciated. I don't know about you, but a small, spoken, appreciative word goes a long way. Especially on a hard day. And I'm here to tell you, I could never do my wife's job. It's much too difficult. Yeah, I see you shaking your head. Neither can I. Again, different roles, but no less important. But to encourage one's wife and to uplift her and to make sure that she's loved and cared for, to give her breaks when she needs them, because you know what? Moms don't get breaks. That's our job. Give your wife a break. Send her out the door to go do whatever. Just take some time off. Unwind. It's important. Turn back to chapter 25 of Proverbs. A couple more marks of a godly man from the book of Proverbs. And again, I am not doing an exhaustive list here. There's so much more here. So if you don't hear something, it's because I didn't want to spend the next three weeks preaching straight. <laughs> Proverbs chapter 25, verse 26. And this is where the rubber meets the road. Like a trampled spring in a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. I want you to know that is a very important one in our day and age. A polluted well, a trampled spring. Think about it. If you take a herd of cows, and everybody can think of cows or even pigs, right? Dirty. Have them walk through your water source. It's going to be dirty, and you're not going to want to drink the water. It's going to be gross. This is what God equates a righteous man who bends before the wicked. Useless, polluted, stinky, disgusting, not good for giving life. That is what a righteous man is when he bows before the wicked. A godly man stands firm. Why? Because as we sang this morning, it doesn't change. God doesn't change. That's why we have hope. That's why we have strength. Because God's word doesn't change. Because God is not like the God of this world who is fickle, who changes constantly like shifting shadows, right? Book of James. Our God is firm and unchanging. From ages past to ages ahead, God will never change. Therefore, God's word is always relevant. Therefore, God's word is always sure. Therefore, God's word is always true. A man of God stands on the principles of God's word and does not bend to the whims of the world. A mark of a godly man is one who stands strong before the wicked, unbending on God's word. And those times will come when you will be tested of whether or not you're going to stand firm on God's word, whether what you really believe is what you stand on. Those times are coming. Some of, some of you may have experienced that. And then verse 28 adds another layer. And like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. A self-controlled man is a godly man. 
without self-control, it's going to be rough. It's going to be difficult. Self-control is a discipline. It's not something that's just natural and easy for a man to grab a hold of. But it's one we ought to work at. Discipline spiritually as well as how we live. As well as what we do. As well as our reactions. Gentleness goes a long way. That's one I have struggled with for years. I'm not a naturally gentle person. But I tell you what, I pray more about that than probably most other things. Because it's important. So many times we read through the list of the fruits of the Spirit and we forget that gentleness is actually a fruit of the Spirit. Mm -hmm. Some of us are a lot more natural at it than others. But take heart, God is bigger than our problems. And if we are willing, God is able to help. Self-control is important. Third place we're going to go, the book of Jude. It's a small book, but it's one that is rich. I forget how many years it's been since I preached through it, but it's been a couple. The book, maybe three, maybe four, I don't know. But the book of Jude has a lot there. And there's one verse in the book of Jude we're going to look at first, and it's verse 3. Because Jude explains his heart. But then he explains his response of why he's writing his book. And why God prompted him to write the book. Verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. I don't know about you, but again, our salvation is the most beautiful and wonderful thing that adds joy to our lives. And who doesn't want to share that? Who doesn't want to encourage people with that, right? And Jude, with all his heart, wanted to write about our common salvation because there's joy and love and peace and excitement in that. But God said no. And he gave the reason why. But I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. That word contend is an outright street fight. That's exactly what that word means. No holds barred. Go at it. Contend earnestly for the faith. It implies a few things. One, there's a fight going on and y'all need to be a part of it. And two, it's not easy. And it can get dirty. And it can get violent. And it can get difficult. Do you know there's more people martyred today than there has been in all of history for their faith? We often don't think about it. We often think of, oh, well, you think of the Holocaust. There's more people murdered today for their faith than there was in the Holocaust. Because Satan hates God. And the closer we get to the end of the age, the more that hatred grows. So are we going to contend earnestly for the faith? It's that idea of no matter what happens, no matter how difficult the road gets, no matter how hateful the world gets, we are going to fight for righteousness. We are going to stand for the truth. Why? Because it was handed down once. That means there's only one gospel. This one. And we will contend earnestly for that if we are godly. Bless you. If we want to follow Christ, we will contend earnestly for the gospel. Because it's his gospel. And the world hates truth. 
But we are called no less to be people of truth. Are we going to contend? And what does some of that contention look like? Jump down to verse 20, please. Still in chapter 1, in case you got lost. Verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Again, what are we to do as husbands and fathers? Build each other up. What are we to do as brothers and sisters in Christ? Build one another up. How do you do that? Well, praying is one. Praying for one another. You know what's another one? Share your burdens. You know, Galatians 6 tells us to share one another's burdens. You know how you do that? Share what your burdens are. Many of us are guilty of not sharing our burdens. And we are commanded to do so. Why? Because we want to encourage and help one another. We want to uplift one another. How do I pray for your burdens if I don't know what they are? Yes, God knows what they are. And I can say, Lord, pray, I pray for... Harrison with all his burdens, but I really don't know what they are, but Lord, I know you do. You know, it's, you can be a lot more time in prayer when you know specifics, and it doesn't have to be everything, but hey, I'm struggling here with this. It gives me more opportunity to go to the scripture and pray through the scripture for that area that you're struggling with. Again, how do you share one another's burdens? By sharing your burdens with others. It sounds simple, but it's one that's very neglected often. But beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Again, looking anxiously for that day when we can go home. Tom and I were having a discussion this morning, and it's that struggle that Paul shared. It would be so much better if the Lord took me home. But for the reasons of my family and church and other reasons that God has, it's better to be here right now. But again, do we long for the fact that this is not our home? Do we long for the fact that we have the hope and the glorious blessing of being face to face with our Savior and not dying? Right? The fact that we can go and stand in the physical and direct presence of God and not be consumed because of the power of the blood of Christ. Do we look forward to that? That longing is our motivation. But what do we do with that? It says this, And have mercy on some who are doubting, and saving others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Again, go out and snatch people out of the fire. Why? Because people are the only thing you can bring with you in eternity. It's the only thing that has value. It's the only thing that has meaning. People. Not stuff. Not the frivolities of the, what the world has to offer. Not our houses. Not our cars. Not our tractors. Not anything else but people. And if we value God, we value people. Again, snatch people. Uplift people. Those who are doubting, undergird them. How? By preaching the truth. And how they can have a firm foundation on the promises of the word of God. There are many people who doubt. There are many people who waver because they think they've got to earn it or they think they have to work for their salvation or they feel like they have to keep it. Well, again, if it was up to people to keep their salvation, no one would be saved. God's 
foundation is firm because it's set upon the rock of Christ who is immovable. Why? Because he's immutable. It means he doesn't change. We go back to that again. The unchangeableness of God is our confidence. Because God doesn't change, I can take everything in here and know exactly what God says and what he means and how he expects me to do that. By his power, his strength, for his glory. But we are to snatch those out of the fire. But it also gives us a good insight here. Hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Again, loving people and hating the sin. Keeping that at arm's length, right? You still have to love people and draw them to Christ by preaching the gospel and getting out of the way so God can do the work because it's God that changes hearts, not people. But it's to also hate sin and keep it far away because it's not hard for pollution to pollute. One drop of poison in a glass of water makes the whole glass of water undrinkable. That's what we are to keep away from. That's what we are to keep ourselves unpolluted and unstained, undefiled by the Lord. Right? Isn't that what the book of James says? Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God is this, to love orphans and widows in distress. And oftentimes we forget the last part. And to keep oneself unstained by the world. Mm -hmm. Are we following after people to snatch them for Christ? Because that's a mark of a godly man. One who contends earnestly for the faith. I've said it a hundred times. If you don't know why you stand where you stand, you won't stand there very long. Do our children understand why they stand upon the truth of God's word or don't they? Because if they don't, they're not going to stand there very long. And that's our fault by not teaching and preaching the gospel. But at the same time, it's their fault because they're responsible before the Lord for their salvation. But we're responsible to teach them the truth. Turn to the book of Hebrews. It's just back. Just a little bit. Chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. There's a training that goes on to being a godly man. The Bible is very clear about that. It takes training and discipline. Hebrews chapter 12, I would encourage you to read the whole thing. It gets into the, the love and the discipline of our Father in heaven and how we are to imitate that. But if you jump down into verse 9, it says this, Furthermore, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall, not, shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of the spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good. Why? So that we may share in his holiness. So that sets the whole context of what we're going to get into here. For all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. There's the key. We are to be trained by the discipline of the Lord and by the discipline of our godly fathers. Training takes effort. You don't become a professional by just stepping into the clothing and saying, okay, I've got a professional uniform on, I'm there. No, it takes effort. Ask me to sit down at the piano and I guarantee you I can't play a note that my daughter played. Just can't. Because I haven't trained. 
Not saying that I'll ever become proficient, but the idea is if you want to be something, you have to be trained and disciplined to do it. And we ought to sit under the training and the discipline of the Lord. And we ought to do that for our children, to train our children to sit under the discipline of the Lord. And it's not easy, but it's worth it. Are we teaching and training our children? Or do we neglect that aspect of being a parent? Because God gave us as parents the responsibility to raise our children, not somebody else. It's not the church's job to raise your children. It's not the school's job to raise your children. It's not your family's job to raise your children. It's not anybody other's job but you as the husband and the wife. Because God gave them to you to train and to discipline. Why? For his glory. To raise up generations that are faithful to the word of God. Therefore, verse 12, strengthen hands that are weak and knees that are feeble. Why? Because sometimes we get put out of joint. Sometimes we get injured. And I'm not just talking about physically, I'm talking about spiritually. Strengthen those who are weak and feeble. How do you do that? And make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Again, walk the straight and narrow road of the Lord, and even if you're injured, you will find healing. Because you're not tripping over the stumbling blocks in the road. Because you're not tripping over the hazards and sins of this world. You will find healing and encouragement. You will find the way difficult, but fruitful. God didn't promise us an easy life. But the rewards of heaven? Oh, golly gee, doesn't get any better. But do we teach our children that endurance? And endurance is key. Perseverance. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification with which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, and that there be no immoral or godless persons like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. People who don't value the gospel. People who don't value God's word. We got to keep our family safe. We got to keep our church safe by practicing godliness, by practicing the discipline of the Lord, by walking in obedience, by being humble. Jesus said there was no one greater who lived than John the Baptist. You want to know why? Read my favorite verse, John 3:30. He must increase, I must decrease. That was the heart of John, that God would increase, that he would decrease, that Christ would always be the front and the forerunner, that Christ would always go before him, that people would forget John and remember Christ, the Christ whom he preached. That was the heart of John. Is that our heart? Because that's a heart of a godly man. It's a heart of a godly woman, that Christ would always be at the forefront Again, there are so many more examples in Scripture. Psalm 1, Psalm 19, Psalm 119, 
Abraham, Noah, Moses. I mean, we could go on for many, many days. But I want to close with an encouragement that God gives us in 2 Peter chapter 1. And I'd like you to take time later to study this more in depth. I'm just going to read through it. But there's much here. Again, God is not silent about how we are to live. And 2 Peter chapter 1 makes it very clear. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Again, there are false faiths. That's what he's getting across. There's the saving faith that we find in that which was handed down once for all through the saints. And then there's other stuff. He says, for those who have the same faith as ours, by the righteousness of God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you. How? In the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and to godliness. How? Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and his own excellence. So here we go. For by these things, what? His divine power, his glory, and his excellence, through the knowledge of him, that's what this is, for by these things, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So, since we have a great and glorious Savior who has given us everything, how we ought to conduct ourselves. He answers that. Verse 5. For this very reason, also applying all diligence. So we are to be diligent in our faith. How? In your faith, supply moral excellence. It's a very high calling, isn't it? To be morally excellent is a very high calling. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. Knowledge of what? Well, I'll just set it up in verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Jesus, our Lord. There's your knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. There's that word again. And in your self-control, perseverance. Why? Because the road is difficult. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. So why are these characteristics important? Well, it says here in verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. He doesn't leave us on our own. It goes back to that promise he made in Deuteronomy, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He abundantly supplies the way if we are willing to be humble and diligent to apply ourselves to the way. So many people say, I don't know what it means to be a godly person. God's word is very clear. It's to be like Christ. Why? Because God gave the greatest spoken word in human ears when he said to Christ, you are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. Do we want to be well pleasing to the Lord? 
follow Christ's example. Follow the example God has laid out for us in his word. Strive to be godly in our living as men and women, but most importantly as husbands and fathers to lead our families in the way that God has called us to do so. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Christ came to do the impossible on our behalf, and that is to make a wretched sinner clean and acceptable in your sight. And Father, we know that it is only through the blood of Jesus Christ, that precious blood that washes us anew, it's the only way that we can stand accepted before you. And we thank you and are so grateful for that. But Lord, in that knowledge, there is a responsibility to that. That by your spirit and your strength that we ought to strive for godliness and discipline in our lives. To be men who are blameless and upright because we fear God and hate evil. Because we have self-control. Because we uplift and encourage our wives and our children. Because we uplift and uphold the weak and the feeble. Because we bear one another's burdens through prayer. Because we seek after those who are lost. Because we once were lost ourselves. Father, we just ask that you would help us to become more like Christ. Because Christ was the only one in whom you said, in him I am well pleased. Father, may we seek to honor you in how we live our daily lives. For the glory of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.